0: You're listening to the Star Wars Reports Rebels Roundtable, the official Star Wars Rebels discussion podcast of StarWarsReports.com. Join us each week as we discuss each new episode. We want to hear what you think of this new Star Wars series. Send us an email or an MP3 at RebelsRoundtable at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash RebelsRoundtable on Twitter at RebelsRound, or on our website, RebelsRoundTable.com. It's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, so strap yourselves in and welcome to the show.
1: Hello and welcome to Rebels Roundtable, the official podcast of the Star Wars Report covering all things Rebels animated series. Tonight we're going to be discussing the episode The Rise of the Old Masters. And joining me is Barrent.
2: Hey everyone,
1: good to be back. The professor himself, Nathan P. Butler.
2: Hey everybody, good to be on for an episode that apparently deals at least in part with teaching.
1: And back from the Nether Regions, rejoining us after a long hiatus. A special guest host, Jerry from Republic Forces Radio Network.
3: Hey, guys. It's great to be here on Rebels Roundtable. You know, I said I wasn't going to join you, but you know I just couldn't stay away too long.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Jerry,
4: it's good to have you back, brother. Well, thank you much, guys. This is going to be fun.
1: So today, we're going to be discussing the third regular season episode. Before we go over that, I'd like to get your guys' impressions on the changes that they made for the ABC airing of Spark of Rebellion meaning the very short clip that they put at the beginning of the episode that has the Inquisitor conversing with Vader. This was something that was given a lot of press on different message boards and on the internet, and it was touted as kind of a big deal. So after seeing it, what did you guys think? Was this something that they needed to add, or did you feel that it maybe even kind of slowed it down?
4: You know, I did not get to see that clip. Because I assumed that it was going to be at the end of the show because that's when they introduced the Inquisitor. So, you know, I had it on my TV and I was cooking dinner or whatever I was doing and I must have missed it. And I, it's not on YouTube or any site that I could find on the Internet. So I, I wasn't able to see it. So I am very interested to hear what you guys had to <laughs> say about it.
2: You know, I didn't see it when it originally aired. I, too, was expecting it to be at the end, so I pop in in the middle, figuring, eh, hey, I've already seen this episode before, and it wasn't at the end. Uh, I was fortunate, though, because I had picked up Spark of Rebellion through iTunes. And with iTunes, I had originally downloaded it as soon as it was available. I also picked it up on DVD because of the whole From the Star Wars Home Video Library video series thing. And I got a, a note saying, oh, hey, by the way... Now that it's aired on ABC, go re-download it from iTunes. They've put the scene on it. So I moved the file, made sure it didn't you know, count as already having been downloaded, downloaded the thing again. And sure enough, that first few minutes, it's this ABC version of the thing. And I got to say, I think it worked really well because the Inquisitor showing up right at the very end was cool for the menace but it didn't really feel like it necessarily fit with the rest of the episode. It felt like it was sort of tacked on as a dun-dun-dun kind of moment to lead us into the regular series. It's cool now because it acts sort of like a bookend. You get the sense that the Inquisitor is out there somewhere, and it's this situation with Callus that brings it to the Inquisitor's attention, and we know why the Inquisitor is searching thanks to that brief scene with Vader. And how cool is it that they actually got James Earl Jones himself to come back and do the voice of Vader for that one scene uh, for spark of rebellion so i'm excited for it i'm glad it's on the itunes version though it does kind of stink that it's not unless i've just missed it (laughs) i don't believe it is on the home video dvd release of spark of rebellion so you know welcome to new story group canon we have our first special edition apparently
1: now nathan I'm going to kind of disagree with you on this. While I loved seeing them include Vader into Rebels, I think it's something that they needed to do. I think it's something I said from the beginning that they were going to be pulling in Vader and the Emperor and it was going to be appropriate. As far as bookending it, I actually think that putting that at the beginning kind of takes something away. I don't think it fits. I liked how it started the original version where the star destroyer is approaching Lothal. I think that it, it, it doesn't feel organic to have that in the beginning. I think like you guys, it would have made more sense to put it at the end. And I also disagree with you, Nathan, where that you feel that that end scene is kind of tacked on. I think again, I feel that that's very organic because we have Agent Callus reporting to the inquisitor that you know, he's seen, you know, that he has some, he doesn't even call him a Jedi. He says that, you know, somebody who makes good use of a lightsaber. And it would have been so much better to see, you know, the Inquisitor kind of raise his head and you see the yellow eyes. And then Callus goes, you know, he's disconnect. He ends his call. And then the Inquisitor turns around and contacts Vader to go, I may have found one of the last Jedi. And we'll talk about why they may still be searching for Kanan later in this this episode. But I think it should have been there. I don't think it should have been at the beginning. I don't think that it felt right to me.
3: Well, oddly enough, like Nathan, I'm getting these shows through iTunes. So the moment you asked the question, Jonathan, it occurred to me that I never went back to find that file. Because you're right, if I go, I happen to have my iPad right next to me I opened it up, I turned that episode on, and there was the scene. Microphone's muted, it's 56 seconds long. I just now watched it for the first time. And I dig the scene. Now, I couldn't help but to notice that Vader's helmet looks very Macquarie-ish, and I don't know if that's just because of the way the the hologram's coming across and and, and everything, but it doesn't look like a normal Vader helmet, which, based on Revenge of the Sith, you think it would have, so maybe that's just me imagining things, but I think I agree with you, Jonathan. I think it would have been better if the Inquisitor had disconnected with Agent Callis and then went straight to Vader with the information. And that was more of a, you know, tie into the reveal of the Inquisitor at the end of that episode versus him popping up at the beginning. Either way, it's a really cool scene. And I'm thrilled that there's going to be a Vader presence in here. And I hope it's going to be down the road. You can't play this hand yet, but I hope down the road that he physically shows up.
2: And I will say from the, the standpoint of – we were talking in a previous episode about how we were wondering you know, how many episodes are going to show up with uh, some kind of space sequence at the beginning to sort of mirror what happened in the classic trilogy. And Jonathan there mentioned the whole opening of Spark of Rebellion with the Star Destroyers coming to Lothal. And yes, they do. But it starts with that shot of the abandoned tower that Ezra's been using as his home, and he looks up as the Star Destroyers are coming down. With this new Vader scene, we actually have a space Star Destroyer sequence as the opening of this chapter of Star Wars. And I think that, even without Vader himself being in it, to have that space scene as opposed to it all being seen from Ezra's point of view on the ground, while it may take away a little bit from that opening feel of Menace as an episode, I think as an opening for the chapter of Star Wars, now made up of Rebels, that works as kind of a cool beginning point to connect with the films.
1: Okay. Well, on to the episode. And I think all of us have been really eager to go over this episode. The internet buzz on it has been very, very positive. Everybody's saying that this is the best episode that Rebels has done so far, and, well, I'm, before I give my thoughts, I'm curious to see what each of you think about this episode. And as our guest, I think it's only fair that we ask Jerry his impressions first.
3: Well, since I'm not a regular on this show, obviously, I'm not necessarily watching these episodes each week and keeping up. I, I've actually sort of binge-watched this whole series, you know, three episodes of it. I watched Spark of Rebellion when it first became available on iTunes, but these the last three episodes, I've actually watched back-to-back-to-back. And I guess to address the, the very first point you made with the internet buzz, this is the best episode, I suppose that's true. I mean, of three, I, I've actually enjoyed the entire series so far. I, I've had no eye-rolling moments, you know, just to kind of give everyone sort of the, where I'm coming from, since this is my first uh, time-sharing perspective. To me, there's been no eye-rolling moments. There's been no moments or or even complete episodes out of three that have caused me to really question the series. I I think it's got great potential. I'm really enjoying it so far. And yeah, this this episode kind of feels like, hey, just three episodes into it, we're already really getting into the meat of what the series is going to be. We've got the uh, Padawan training going on. We've got our first encounter with the Inquisitor already happening. You kind of feared that they might have done one of those things with the Inquisitor and the uh, the Rebels here to where the Inquisitor shows up at the last minute and they just took off and they just keep just barely missing each other and you really don't get the confrontation until later. So I really enjoyed the fact that, boom, out of nowhere, we've got Kanan, Inquisitor facing each other and it, it's go time. So I really, I really enjoy that aspect of it. I mean, we'll talk more of the points. I don't think the episode, though, was particularly strong in terms of the plot. It was sort of a kind of an underwhelming plot of how it, all this happened. And we'll get into the whole thing with Luminara. But yeah, overall, I think it's setting up the tone nicely.
4: I agree with you on some points, but I really enjoyed this episode uh, for the fact that Filoni and crew are able to merge together the prequel era along with what he's trying to do here. is really kind of cool as a fanboy to think that Filoni is trying to use some of the things he's used in the Clone Wars and bring them into this new series into basically the classic trilogy, original trilogy era. And I thought it was pretty cool. I like the fact that they did use the Inquisitor. And I like the fact that the Inquisitor is much stronger than Kanan. And if you're going to have a superhero story or a hero story at all, it's always better when the villain is much stronger than the hero and the hero has to find a way to defeat the villain anyway. So I like the fact that he is not, as Jen would put it, a mustache twirler. Kind of how we describe Grievous on previous shows in Republic Forces Radio. I mean, this guy is awesome. And I have some questions about the Luminar thing that we're going to get into. Just exactly how things worked uh, with her being dead. But we'll get into that. But I, I think that this show was great. And it does bring along... The plot of the entire series is we know that these guys are not afraid of going against the Empire and doing what they think is right or to help a friend. So I liked it a lot.
2: You know, I have to agree with Barrett. I think this time around, I love this episode. This is one as soon as it was out, I immediately hopped onto the Star Wars Timeline Gold's Facebook page and said, folks, this is what Rebels needs to be. It had the humor in the episode quite a bit. I had the character development for the characters, especially when it comes to Kanan and Ezra's relationship and a little bit more about how they feel about each other in the Jedi training. I introduced the Inquisitor in a way that he's not just that individual having conversations about Kanan. He is now on the scene as things are happening. Uh, we get to hear uh, the great voice acting going along with the characters. I've been looking forward to uh, bringing that voice actor finally into the series. And – What a bait-and-switch, but a cool bait-and-switch, right? We see the previews. Oh, look, Master Luminara is back. How are they going to pull this off with her in this era? Is she going to go off kind of like Obi-Wan? Is it going to be something where she must die by the end of the episode, or by end of the season? What's going to happen? Wow, great. Now these characters who are supposed to be the underdogs have a freaking Jedi Master from the Jedi Council with them, but not so much. Got a nice creepy moment, which again, a little bit odd in how it worked. I had some questions as well. I had to go to at least a little bit of a, a research on it through the different episode guide bits that you can get on StarWars.com and all. But overall, I mean, it had pretty much everything I would want to see in an episode of Rebels. Even had a cool cameo in that we got Brent Spiner, a.k.a. Commander Data, coming in as the senator who breaks in with his Rebel transmission. So best one of the series so far, which isn't saying much because it's only been a handful of episodes – Uh, But if this is what we can expect to see from the series, it's going to be great. It's now set a new benchmark, I think, uh, that all the future episodes are going to have to live up to when we get the next filler one, like fight or flight, and compare it back to this one.
1: Okay, now it's time for me to give my impressions. Now, while this episode had a lot that worked for me, there were a few other things that didn't work for me. And I felt that in some ways, you know, we had some of those whiplash moments with the tone. The beginning, I understand what they were trying to set up with the training of Ezra by Kanan, and we really get a sense of how inexperienced Kanan is as a teacher, and how almost uncomfortable in the role he is. And we'll talk about it. There there were a couple of things that happened there that really kind of took me out of the episode, because I couldn't believe that anybody would do that. Now... The bit with the Inquisitor I did enjoy, but up to that point, getting into the prison, I think they could have just done so much more with it that would have maybe increased the tension. I think this would have been a really tremendous two-part episode, and I think that it suffers from feeling a little rushed at points. On to the good points, I think that the introduction and the way that they're handling the Inquisitor is phenomenal. I like the voice acting. I like just the fact that he exudes menace. And it's almost like I suppose the first time I watched it, I the inquisitor almost seemed like a spider toying with his prey. And that that's the, that's the vibe I got from the inquisitor. But on to the meat of this episode. We started off as Kanan is training Ezra or continuing or starting to train Ezra in in the use of the Force. And we get this scene where Ezra is perched on top of the upper turret of the ghost, you know, much like we saw Luke and Dagobah trying to balance and, and concentrate and use focus. However, instead of doing it in a swamp where when you land, you, you know, it, the ground is a little bit givy because it, it's squishy ground, they not only do it on top of the ship, they do it on top of the ship in flight. Is Kanan a sadist? What exactly (laughs) is he trying to do? Because, you know, we see it and Ezra almost dies. You know what? I evaluate teachers now and I think that if I saw any of my teachers taking this approach to instructing their students, I I may have to have a conference with them.
3: It's clear that he's trying to get rid of Ezra all along, you know, trying to (laughs) dump him on Luminar. So maybe just the extreme of that is, hey, he either passes these tests or he dies. Either way, I win. (laughs)
4: <laughs> i'm not too sure he was trying to dump him on luminara i think he wanted Luminara's help but he clearly does not know what he's doing i don't want to think Kane is an idiot but nathan said it before when order 66 went down he was a padawan and he his training wasn't complete and it is much clearer he does not know how to train it's very dangerous and when ezra's getting hit he doesn't even have a blast shield down uh, you know, he's got his eyes wide open and he can't be trained enough to hit one of those milk cartons they're throwing at him. And every time he's getting hit, Kanan is, you know, it shows Kanan kind of wincing and he's given no instruction. He's not telling him to concentrate, nothing. They're just throwing tennis balls at him or whatever. And it's just hitting him. And Zeb gave him more instruction than Kanan did. So and then when Ezra falls off the ship, Kanan barely has enough strength to raise him up back to Zeb's arms. It, it, this was
1: very confusing. This is this is Jedi training that we've never seen before. And I'm reclassifying Chopper. He's not grumpy. He's homicidal.
2: See, I don't know. Having seen so much of Jedi training in the Legends continuity, obviously there's this sense of trying to measure and balance things uh, based on how does it compare to what we've seen before. We haven't really seen a whole lot of Jedi training within the scope of of the new canon, so to speak, aside from things like Ahsoka's training and bits and pieces of Luke's and so forth. I do think it's bizarre they decided to do it up in the air, unless there was some reason they had to be off the ground at that point or was supposed to have him compensating for the fact that the ship is perhaps uh, adjusting itself to stay in position or whatever. Uh, That in and of itself was bizarre. But this is also a Jedi Order that said... You know, that whole thing where we thought you bombed the Jedi Temple and thought that you killed a bunch of clone guards and that you had had these nanobots and all this stuff. Uh, the fact that we almost had you put to death because they were about to declare a verdict of guilty and kill you and all. Yeah, that was actually your great trial. We see that now. So you got to kind of assume that the Jedi's training methods, there's there's a large breadth and scope of what they do. Whether it's safe or not, whether it even really is training or they just kind of make stuff up as they go along. It's bizarre they did it up in the air. Chopper should have been told to stop before he knocked Ezra off of the thing. This feels much more like Sith training than Jedi training. But a cool sequence would have made more sense for it to be on the ground. But I can see why from the standpoint of just making an interesting episode, they decided to put it in the air so that he could have the falling off and pulling him aboard type of moment of peril.
1: Okay, well, I I just keep thinking it's a really good thing that, you know, they didn't run into a tie patrol while they were doing this. Because I could just see swooping in Hera bank sharply and all th- all four of them go off.
2: They have plenty of trash to throw at any incoming tie fighters.
1: Very true, but uh, the other thing, Kanan's ability to pull back Ezra, that also took me out of it because that, that seems like a tremendous ability to, to be able to reach that far, grab a falling object and, you know, a falling person in this case and pull them back. I mean, that's something that not even Vader could do in the Empire Strikes Back when Luke dropped off Cloud City. And you would think that if that could be done easily, that Vader would have done it to bring, to, to grab Luke and bring him back. So it just, it seems like Kanan's skills, Kanan's abilities, are inconsistent. As we'll find out later, the Inquisitor hands him his hands him his tail when they're dueling, but Kanan is still able to use force levitation to, to hold the Inquisitor against the ceiling to save Ezra. And he's able to do this, but he's not able to do other things. I mean, maybe we could write that off as because he's had, you know, his training was incomplete, and maybe he has skills in some areas and is lacking in others. But again, when he was able to do that, which, again, tremendous feat, I, I didn't buy it.
3: It's funny you say that, Jonathan, because one of the things that I felt about that scene was is that at first I thought it was unrealistically amazing that he could reach, oh, I don't know, let's say a 1,000 feet to grab him blind. But then when he was just trying to hover him over the landing so that Zeb could reach out and grab him that at that point you think that'd be the easy part. Now, I guess you could argue, yeah, at that point he's pretty fatigued and he's been holding him and carrying that whole time. But then you're right, whenever Kanan, though, gets around stormtroopers, I'm amazed of how he just throws stormtroopers and and combats them. I mean, he's he's really a bad dude. And then, you're right, he gets up against the Inquisitor and he's lucky to walk away with his life. So I guess it's sort of a... I don't know, sort of a consistent to maybe athletic ability to where, I don't know, let's say that something emotional, adrenaline hits you, like uh, having to save Ezra's life, and then suddenly he can hold the Inquisitor up against the ceiling, but then the rest of the times he just couldn't pull it together because he's, he's surprised by the, the fact that the Inquisitor, I mean, heck, he doesn't even know that the Inquisitor exists, so there's a big shock value of like, wait a minute, who is this dude? He's pretty good. He's suffering from fear. And I mean, heck we understand that Kanan, Kanan came and explained the Yoda line of do or do not. There is no try. Even, even Kanan's like, Oh yeah, I, am not even really sure what that means, which I didn't like that line by the way. But you you can kind of tell that Kanan is sort of this, um, I don't know, like kind of making it up as he goes along just because he, he has enough knowledge to be dangerous, but he really, perhaps he really shouldn't be training any future Jedi.
4: You know, I think you hit it on the nail there, Jerry, with his emotions. I think because he was so young as a Padawan, he hasn't learned how to fully use his Jedi power at peace or when he when he is still like Yoda does, like Obi-Wan, like any well-trained Jedi does. They can use they're very powerful without emotion. But when his emotion comes out, that's when he's powerful. And that's more of a dark side thing. You know, that's kind of dangerous to be able to use your emotions because that's what the dark force users do. They use their anger. They use their emotion to make them stronger. And when Ezra's falling, you can tell that it's his Padawan. So he was able to use that power, that emotion to get him up there. But once he knew that he was safe, then he got tired. Or like you said, when he's around a stormtrooper or the Inquisitor, he can use his emotions. You know, Ezra says to him when they first start attacking the base and he's taking these stormtroopers out, wow, you're not, you're not playing around this time. It's because he's using his emotions. And that's, that's kind of uh, really close to the dark side.
2: It seems that I mean, in a sense, what we're getting here is, I mean, the focus of the episode, no pun intended, is focus, and it's not just Ezra that needs it, it's Kanan. I mean, he even figures out the whole idea of do or do not, there is no try, and understanding what it means to do versus try by the end of the episode. But he's also having to focus in on things uh, in terms of being able to use the Force the way that he wants to use it. Whenever he's using it uh, instinctively, single-mindedly, it works. But when it comes to trying to teach and such, it's a much more difficult thing to deal with because he's trying to show someone else how to focus. He does appear untrained in some cases. Uh, I would say it's very much like, as Jerry put it, athletics, but in a different way. You know, If you are the best player you've got on a high school basketball team, you're probably going to do pretty well. But put that person in versus someone who's the best player or a group of mediocre players on a college team, and in some cases, many cases, they'll get their butts kicked. It's a question of degree. He may have these skills, but he's nothing compared to the Inquisitor. And when he does use those skills, you notice when he does hold the Inquisitor up against the ceiling, he is straining to do it. He's out of breath to do it. He's a run, and then they got to get the heck out of there. He is weakened by all the stuff that he's doing with the Inquisitor. In a way, he was never weakened when he was doing it to the Stormtroopers throughout the episode. From the standpoint of, you know, well, why would he be able to do this versus other things? If it's not a focus or a training issue... I would move it back and make the Legends comparison to a character like Koran Horn. The idea that Jedi have different skill sets that they are best at. In Koran Horn's case, it was telekinesis that he always had an issue with. Well, maybe for Kanan, it's these more physical applications of the Force that he's best at. But when it comes to things like using it to focus in lightsaber combat to predict movements that are coming at him and things like that, Maybe that's one of his weaker areas. We don't really know enough about his training, which we will get, by the way, in the Marvel series, Star Wars Kanan, the last Padawan coming soon, um, that is going to kind of flesh that out. But for now, we don't really have enough to go on other than the fact that he's got these abilities. He just spent many years not using them overtly. But that's about it.
1: And we can't forget the fact that Kanan never finished his training, and you made a good point. You made me think he was what we would have referred to back in the Clone Wars as a war Padawan. He got his training when there was a war going on. And I think a lot of his skills, a lot of his training probably centered around the martial skills as compared to some of the other Jedi, which was more the the mediation, the, the introverted, the, the more peaceful skills. And I don't think that he was ever tempered, that he ever... He he ever learned, you know, he, he learned how to do it, but I don't think he necessarily learned when to do it. I mean, a perfect example is just the 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 violence that he sometimes exudes. It's not something that we've typically seen, the the that aggressiveness. We we don't see it from other Jedi, even in the the traditional or the the new continuity. He is walking I mean, again, and I'm drawing from the the Legends canon here and and the information that we have from that. So they could have all been changed. But the way I interpret it, Canaan is walking a very, very fine line between light and dark. And I'm wondering if he could tip either way. And the idea that he is training a Padawan, and especially a Padawan who has been through the experiences that Ezra has been through, and, you know, is as old as he is without getting some of the early training. We, we've seen what happens with that. I mean, in Anakin. And I really do believe that this series will pick up that story. But this is not a good mix. This, in my mind, is not going to necessarily end well.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point, Jonathan. I mean, I, I, I think everything that we've said about Kanan is what's going to make this very interesting television. Because he's not a Qui-Gon Jinn level of Jedi who just seemingly or even Obi-Wan Kenobi, who just always seems to know the right thing to do. He's far more Anakin than, uh, I think he made a great comparison. And the beautiful thing, just in general, that I love about this series, anything can happen to any of these characters. Kanan can die next week. You know, there's no guarantee that he shows up in Episode 7, or I guess in this case, the next, you know, thing chronologically that we know is truth is Episode 4. It's not like we got little baby Han Solo running around that has to be Someone who survives. Anything. Any of these people could go dark. Any of these people could join the Inquisitor. The Inquisitor could turn good. I mean, it could be, that would be ridiculous, (laughs) by the way, but there's no guarantees of anything. Uh, All of the things we're saying is what's actually going to make, I think, this very interesting television.
4: The Inquisitor turning good. I see
3: the good in you, (laughs) Ezra says to him. He'll need a new name.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So after the, mm, let's say, questionable. Uh, instruction session. We learned that, again, they referenced the earlier episode with Fight or Flight. They, the, the TIE fighter that they stole, um, we see the Imperial propaganda machine at work that, you know, they're reporting that Ezra and Zeb, or whoever stole the TIE fighter, they don't know, used it to attack these work and kill these workers. It was just a, a very subtle thing. But again, it's kind of carrying these things forward. These things are very linear, and I'm sure, Nathan, you like seeing that.
2: I did like seeing how they would spin uh, the story of what happened back in Fight or Flight. Uh, I also like the fact that in that same transmission, we have two more elements, I think, of what will wind up being continuity. Uh, one, not only do they tie in between that, but they also bring in this Gall Travis character, said to be the only senator willing to speak out publicly. Against the Empire. So now he's essentially a senator in exile. You know, they didn't bring back Brent Spiner to create this character for a one shot. Surely he's going to be back. I mean, that's no foreknowledge, no virtual guide or visual guide type stuff to this. But surely. They're not going to have him come in for just a brief cameo, and that's it. Surely this will come back. They mention, uh, was it base Delta Zero or whatever it is, as as part of their transmissions and such, which makes me wonder where that's going to come into the series, uh, if that's going to be a repeated reference, uh, given some of the things that we've seen just in previews that suggest that there's a bigger arc coming that they're laying little hints for from time to time. And by the time that transmission is over, not only do we have the reference, The reference to Luminara, which of course sets the rest of the episode in motion, but they reference the fact that she's being held in the Stygian system, and the prison she's going to be held in is the exact same prison that held Darth Maul in Darth Maul's Son of Dathomir, which is, of course, based on unproduced Season 6 Clone Wars episodes and the only Dark Horse Comics comic to be carried over from Legends continuity, where it's there with the Clone Wars stuff, into story group canon or whatever you want to call it now, with the Clone Wars. So very cool to see that location being referenced and then used within the episode. Uh, It would have been continuity between the two series. Now it's continuity broader because now it actually includes the comic adaptation by Jeremy Barlow of those unproduced episodes. This little transmission scene had a lot going for it in terms of linking things together.
1: You know, I'm glad you brought that up. Back to the base Delta Zero. And I'm not a 100% sure, and I'm sure that our listeners can fill me in if I'm wrong. I didn't have time to go back through my old West End Games source material, but I believe that was something that was referenced there about a base delta zero is when the empire will level a city. I think that's code for basically wiping out a population. And when I heard that, I... I liked it. We're seeing so much more of the Empire. In the original trilogy, we saw the Empire as just this big force, and it was all military. But since this series started, we've seen other things. In Fight or Flight, we saw that they will try to purchase things. You know, that there's another side that they won't automatically resort to extreme violence. Here, we're seeing the Imperial propaganda machine. I really do appreciate the fact of the, they're trying to give so much more depth to the empire that we didn't have time to see in the original trilogy.
4: When I heard about how they said they stole the TIE fire to, you know, the lies, it brought me back to Emperor Palpatine. It brought to Senator Palpatine. I mean, he, that's what he did in the clone wars. A lot of the times he used information to, manipulate the situation to get what he wanted and i i like that this is a continuation of that so we see that he's now the emperor and he's just continuing to do and tell the lies as he sees fit and i like that
1: so the group learns that luminara unduli the jedi master that we saw in the prequel trilogy and the clone wars is still alive or is reported to be still alive and held prisoner. And of course, our group is gonna go after her right away. They're gonna go rescue her, and they prepare for this rescue, and Sabine kind of briefs them on this prison and how impenetrable it is. Did anybody else get the sense that You know, the more we see her, the more I'm I'm going to have to go back to what Jen said. This this girl isn't quite right in the head. She seemed to almost take like this perverse glee and like, no, this place is this place. You know, we're never going to get in and out of this place. It's going to be too hard. And, you know, I really like this character. I, I think of the group right now, she's she may be my favorite, but no, she ain't right. She's more Karen Travis Mandalorian
4: than Dave Filoni Mandalorian is what it is. And I think that's what you like about her. She is a little twisted. You know, we don't know very much about Sabine, uh, but she is a little twisted. And uh, that's going to be some good storytelling as well when they start delving into her.
2: I think it's not so much twisted. Well, okay, in this case, not so much twisted. Just someone who appreciates sort of a a master craftsmanship. You know, when it comes to to the things that she creates and the explosions and whatnot that she makes, she likes the artistry of it and the, the details that make it what it is. And in this case... This particular prison, the Spire, is, in a sense, when it comes to prisons, a work of art uh, from her perspective. And it's a work of art that combines, you know, the deadly elements of the things that she likes as a Mandalorian, but also the design and architecture that that makes it actually fall into a category of art. So this seems like it's definitely in keeping with her character. I'm not sure how twisted she would be. I mean, this is like someone who's really into planes, being excited at how awesome a new fighter plane and its payload might be it's gonna wind up getting some people killed but look at that plane
1: the other thing that we get in this scene is the reveal of the phantom and we knew it was coming i really thought that the reveal of the phantom really would have been kind of a more i don't know grandiose thing but it's just sort of like okay we're, we're getting it and we're flying away i thought that they would have used the little shuttle to save them in a fight or something but instead they use it to just approach the prison without being seen. And I kind of liked that. Again, it feels very appropriate. You couldn't bring this huge freighter in, but we have this little attack shuttle that can sneak into the airspace without being noticed and can dock and wait for the group who's infiltrating the prison. What did you guys think of this reveal?
3: It's funny you call it a reveal, Jonathan. I guess to your point, I never even saw it as a reveal. It never even occurred to me that we didn't already know this. And I guess it's just because of what we know through the toys and just pre-production information. I mean, we knew this thing existed. So and I, I think this speaks to your point. The fact that it didn't even occur to me that we hadn't seen this in the series yet speaks to the point of like, uh, yeah, this was a little underwhelming uh, reveal to where I didn't think it was a reveal. I thought it was just like, oh, well, yeah, of course there's a shuttle. I just saw the Lego toy this morning.
4: <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jerry... I don't think that it was a reveal either. We didn't know it was coming, but it more reminded me of how, you know, you have these people who have a big yacht and then they drive their big boat into the big yacht. The big yacht is the star. The ghost is the star of the show. And the phantom is just the little boat. So I think they handled it pretty well. And I like the fact that they're giving us a lot of different angles on the ghost and It really has a Millennium Falcon feel to it. I mean, the aesthetics are gray and kind of poofy doors and stuff around them that gives a Millennium Falcon. But it really gives a sense of living on this ship. You know, they actually live there. And I like that. So, you know, it's not the star. It was a pretty cool little ship. And I did see the Lego ship, too, Jerry. So, you know, everybody knew it was coming. So I think they handled it pretty well.
2: What's funny is apparently not everybody knew it was coming because this was one of the things that uh, a longtime listener to the various podcasts I'm involved with brought up when he brought up the fact that we were because of the visual guide and because of seeing the toys and such, uh, there were comments we were making, me in particular, that would spoil what was coming up in future episodes. And one of the things that if you actually were staying spoiler free for Rebels that you would not have known about is the Phantom, is the fact that there was this other little ship connected to the bigger ship the idea that the ghost had sort of its own little baby shuttle and all i would have expected a bigger reveal for this i'm kind of glad that there wasn't that it's just oh it's just part of the ship and there it goes it wasn't treated like it wasn't a star trek the next generation we need 10 minutes of screen time to show you the new ship or hey to show you the saucer separating kind of thing it was just oh it's there we need it there it goes but it certainly was something i would have expected there to be more fanfare with, or at least more of a focus on it. It didn't even seem like they really focused in on the ship really at all. It was just sort of there and they followed the characters along. You didn't get, you know, kind of the beauty shots of the ship or the little shuttle and such like that. So, pretty cool to see. Uh, I think that for those who really stayed spoiler free, it was a pretty anticlimactic introduction. But for those who weren't spoiler free, Uh, who knew this was coming from things like the toys and whatnot, for a while it was, well, where's the Phantom? Where are they going to introduce the Phantom? Well, now they have, and we can just get on with it. That's another thing we've seen in action now. We've seen it. We know the toys are there. You know, what's the next thing on the agenda to hit? You know, that they don't have to worry about introducing so much as moving along with the plot of season one.
1: They use the Phantom to approach this platform that isn't very large and was only able to be guarded by about, two stormtroopers, and Kanan jumps and essentially beats up the stormtrooper. Now, wouldn't that hurt? I mean, you're you're punching armor. They all were doing it. They're all just, I mean, I could see Zeb punching the armor and not hurting, but for Sabine and Kanan, I would think that, that, you know, you might have to ice your knuckles after that.
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't fully remember Sabine's armor, but maybe she had, I don't know if she has anything on her gloves or on her gauntlets or whatever, but yeah, I mean, Kanan's just, purely bare knuckles on it and maybe he's using some force enhancement to, I don't know, you could argue a lot of things, but yeah, that, those are the scenes with Kanan where I'm just like, man, he is the ultimate bad dude. This is how we wanted to see Jedi in the Clone Wars. This is how we viewed Mace Windu in the Tartakovsky series where he's taken out thousands of battle droids in one shot. It's like, yeah, a Jedi should be that, that much of a a bad dude sort of thing. I think where it kind of lost me though, and I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, after they kind of beat him around a little bit, they would, when it was convenient, just toss him over the uh, the ledges like it's no big deal. It's like, yeah, we beat him up. We knocked him unconscious. Just chuck him.
2: Yeah, I thought the actual fight, I mean, it, it played out well. It was fun. It was exciting. Having him hit the armor, yeah, it's a little odd, but I think it's something we're just going to have to get used to with this series. I just write it off in my head as, yeah, probably some kind of force enhancement or whatnot to the punch, so it's not actually his knuckles maybe that's hitting. Yeah, but what drew me out of the scene briefly was the idea that they just tossed the troopers over the edge. I understand this is war. I understand that this crew is not a Jedi crew per se, but they're being essentially led in this case by a Jedi, And they're supposed to be training Ezra to be a Jedi. And yet when they have the choice of knocking out some of the troopers and just leaving them there versus throwing them to their deaths, some of them wind up getting thrown to their deaths. And it's in keeping with sort of the Han Solo vibe of the team, but not necessarily the Luke Skywalker type vibe that we might want to see from the Jedi crew. It's almost like Anakin showing up aboard the ship in Voyager Temptation, stabbing the guy through the chest and saying, what? You know, he was going to kill you or he's going to blow up the ship. You know, it's, it's that kind of moment, which from this crew, I'm not sure whether we should expect this type of thing more often or not.
3: I mean, I, I get the fact that if you leave 10 stormtroopers on the platform, they eventually wake up and come after you. And heck, I don't know, maybe the gravitational pull on this planet is such that they landed nice and softly.
4: Or maybe the rocks don't hurt their armor as much as the punch do. <laughs> you know, they did leave two sitting up, you know, kind of standing up. It's kind of hard to stand up when you're knocked out, but they did leave two there. I think that the ones they threw over the ledge, they had to, you know, they, or they only really needed two to sit at the door to act like they're still there. You know, this is, this is war. And, you know, the, the stormtroopers, if you give them a chance, they'll kill you. Like you said, Jerry, you can't leave them hanging around. So. I didn't see it too much. It didn't shock me as much, which may say more about me than anything else.
1: I really did like that they propped those two stormtroopers up. And you see it's just in the background. Zeb trying to like prop him up and he slides down and he props him back up again. So anybody looking, it'll, it'll just look. Like, they're, they're still guarding. But the other thing, and this just goes back to my role-playing game days, is Kanan was throwing their blasters over, too. He was, like, grabbing their blasters and chucking them. And And wasn't it in Spark of Rebellion that they were stealing crates of these blasters? You'd think they'd just hang on to them. I mean, I know when we played our games, we we would collect as many of those things as we could and sell them on the black market. But that's neither here nor there. The other thing that I th- think... it. It would have made more sense to me when they're infiltrating. They had all these unblemished sets of armor. They could have Kanan, maybe not Ezra, but at least Kanan could have donned a set of armor and probably gotten in there with a lot less attention being paid to him. You know, they could have done a Luke and Han on the Death Star. And so our group enters the prison. And I really like that Ezra, Every everybody on that team has a job. And and they call on Ezra to to break in to the prison, to open the door. It's not something that Kanan, Zeb, or even Sabine can do. They need Ezra to do it. And then they get in, and Sabine is the one that basically slices into the network to figure out where Luminara is. Again, it feels very organic. It feels very much like what a team would be. Everybody has their job, everybody has their specialty, and they all work well together. They play off each other. It's another thing that I think this series is doing really well.
4: You can almost see Filoni in the meeting room, where one of the writers brings up, hey, let's bring Chopper off, and Chopper will unlock the door, something that R2 would do. And Filoni says, no, 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 Chopper wouldn't do it. You know, he would say no or whatever. Let's let's have Ezra do it. It's almost like you can see that happening. That they're really thinking this stuff through. And I agree with you, uh, Jonathan. I really like it that they all have a a set of skills, and that's the reason they're on the team. And Kanan may not be the best strategist, but he knows how to use a, a set of skills, and I think that is very Jedi-like.
3: The only thing that occurred to me though about that was. This team obviously operated quite a quite a while I suppose for at least some amount of time before Ezra showed up. So who did that job, you know, 3 weeks ago before he joined the team? I was actually kind of surprised that Ezra had such a I don't know, maybe a high profile role of like, oh crap, hey Ezra get over here and hack into this. I was like, well, who did that before? Why is Ezra suddenly so essential? It's good if you want to give him a job because hey, one person's going to focus on this. One person's going to focus on this, but in that in that scenario, they're just stuck until Ezra walked up and did that.
1: Unless he was just better at it than Sabine, maybe Sabine or somebody else would have done that job. But Ezra, being the little thief that he is, you know, just was better.
4: I'm going to bet money it was going to be Chopper because that's the same little R two stick that R two uses. It was just a handheld version, but I would assume that it was Sabine as well. She probably just blow it up, and they, you know, maybe they didn't want that this time.
1: I did like, I mean, again, that sort of little pyromaniac aspect of Sabine when they're in before before they get to the landing platform, and Zeb goes, "We're going to need a miracle," and Sabine's like, "I got three of them," and she hands out these little bombs. I, <laughs> she's nuts, but I, I think I love her. And you know, th- this group plays off each other so well. They're in, they're in the turbo lift, and. Zeb and Sabine are like, oh, well, gee, I I really hope that he doesn't decide to change the plan again. And Kanan's like, you know, I'm standing right here. And they're both without missing a beat. Yeah, we know. I kind of thought that maybe Zeb had a special part in giving Ezra a lot of crap, but I think he gives everybody crap. I think everybody on that ship is uh, curmudgeon at some point or another.
3: Yeah. And I think that's good Star Wars humor, you know, in the sense that it's, it's a little chide here. It's a little Comment here. It's not trying to be laugh a minute type comedy. I mean, it's not the kind of buffoonery that we've seen from a Jar Jar or something, to where we want to roll our eyes or the fart jokes or things like that we've seen in the prequels. It's just, yeah, it's just some of the sarcasm between them. It's it's sort of a Han and Leia sort of, uh hey, I take orders from just one person, me. Well, it's a surprise. It, it's a wonder you're still alive, sort of thing, to where it's like, yeah, that that's my Star Wars humor. Don't. Don't overdo it. It's just it's just a little here, a little there, slight sarcasm. Ha, ha, ha. It's kind of funny. Let's go blow something up.
1: The comedy in this episode worked. It worked really well without being so overstated. A perfect point to that was when Kanan and Ezra are leaving the turbo lift and Zeb and Sabine are in there and the stormtrooper's helmet gets stuck in the door and Zeb just kind of just pulls it in. It, it isn't overstated. It's it's there, but I, I that was a laugh out loud moment for me the first time I saw it.
2: We can tell that they've got an element of humor when making this that necessarily wasn't always there, I guess, uh, in some of the other stuff that we've seen them put out through Star Wars, whether we're talking about Clone Wars or whatever. They they work really well at it, but also behind the scenes, you see the same thing when the phantom is attached to the outside of the of the prison. Right. It's basically being courted, so to speak, by these Tibbities, the, the big creatures out there. But what's a Tibbity? It's. They're they're saying out TBD because in the script it said to be determined TBD and they never got around to naming them. So eventually they became Dibbides. The crew seems to have that that humor, not just in front of the camera, so to speak, in the actual writing, what gets produced in the episodes. But they seem to be having fun with it behind the scenes, too, which bodes well, I think, for keeping the uh, the, the sort of sense of adventure and original trilogy fun that these episodes have relative to what could become of the series if it gets too bogged down in that the the prequel trilogy and, and prequel trilogy humor vibe that really was you know it has its place but it was very different than that original trilogy feel
1: you know when i saw those those creatures i was immediately taken back to well the first couple of episodes of clone wars there was i think it was ambush where Yoda was these little baby animals that we then found in the malevol the second episode of the Malevolence trilogy, what were they called? The Nibre things, these these giant space animals that the Y-wings had to fly fly around. They they look so much like that. I was wondering until I looked at uh, StarWars.com if those were the same type of animals. So Ezra and Kanan move deeper into the prison to find Luminara, and again, a kind of a nitpick. Why doesn't Ezra have a weapon? He has his slingshot, which does nothing to no one. It's, it's it's an annoyance. I mean, okay, fine. You know, the kid doesn't have a lightsaber. Okay, g- give him a blaster. Give him something.
3: He, he's he's walking in there unarmed. I mean, especially considering that Kanan chucked about nine blasters over the edge. You, you, you certainly had some available to say, hey, kid, take one of these.
4: Kanan doesn't even have his lightsaber put together this whole time, which is very shocking. I just assumed that he would have his lightsaber going as soon as they broke in. It's still disassembled by the time they get to Luminara's cell.
2: Well, These guys are more break-in, break-out artists as opposed to being a real strike team in that sense. I mean, everything about the way they planned it with all the different roles that they played makes this out to be something where they're sort of like, you know, they're the team that goes in and gets the intel and gets back out again. And then there's a bigger assault team that goes in and handles everything else. They're planning on sneaking in getting to Luminara, getting out of there because a full-fledged assault will probably get some or all of them killed. So it sort of makes sense from that sense. But yeah, it should have been at least some type of weapon in Ezra's hands, even if they were to take one of the blasts from the stormtroopers and say, you know, you're not good with lethal stuff yet or you shouldn't have something lethal yet. Here, let's set it to stun or something. Uh, But then we wouldn't get to have that moment, of course, where he's firing the ineffective slingshot shots. At the Inquisitor, who is managing to completely shrug it off, either because of his armor, because it's just the slingshot, or because of some type of force ability that he has. But the cannon not hooking up the lightsaber, that's something else. That should probably be something where he's put it together and it's hanging off his belt or he's holding it in one of his hands, or something, even if only to say, hey, when we get to Luminara, assuming she is alive, this is my way of showing her very quickly, I'm a Jedi, let's get the hell out of here. So let's
1: talk about Luminara. I... I've seen this episode a number of times, and I'm still not entirely sure what we saw. Now, Jerry and I have had the opportunity to kind of discuss this a little bit, and I want to get his impression. But I don't know what that was, if it was a hologram, if it was some sort of force projection. And I don't get why they needed her corpse in the cell. I mean, okay – Kanan says, yes, I sense her, but it's not right. Can you sense if somebody's dead? I would assume that a corpse would give off a different force signature than a a person, because we've heard time and time again that force is based on life. Life creates it, makes it grow. If there's no life there, how can there be force?
3: Yeah, I mean, kind of an interesting thing to that is, I mean, we do live in the new world order here of we don't know what canon's going to establish for anything about force rules. But yeah, I would have assumed one thing that would still be consistent is, hey, I don't sense Luminara here. Not that I sense her presence, but it's not right. Oh, well, of course, because she's dead. No, I I, I would think that the dead body of Luminara would not give off any sort of sense. But to answer your, your other question, I interpreted that scene as a hologram that then walked towards the tomb, the the sarcophagus of whatever, and it physically, well, it appeared to enter in there to draw their attention to it, and then when it turned off, you saw the dead body. It's quite yeah. elaborate of why they'd have to go, you know, to that to say, "Ha ha, fool you! She's really dead." But even the inquisitor says, "Ah, oh, yes, but her bone still serves our purpose." I suppose this is a trick they play on multiple Jedi. Be- but, but, yeah, it's really weird. I, I didn't fully get, after two watchings, fully get, you know, with confidence. That's why I interpreted. But I, didn't, I don't have a strong confidence of, yeah, what exactly happened there?
4: You guys don't watch Disney XD a lot. When Pharaoh is at home and I'm at home with him, that's basically what he watches a lot. So if you watch it a lot, you'll get the answer. What happened was they had a little snippet of Dave Filoni. And he actually explains the scene. And what you're seeing there is the execution of Luminara as a hologram. And the reason when Kanan and Ezra go into her cell and she looks up at them kind of blank-eyed, Filoni explained it as it was her actual execution that they're looking at. And the executioner or whoever executed her came into the room. And that's why she looked up like that. And he also explains, Filoni explains that Kanan is able to sense the bones of Luminara, but he knows that something isn't right. So they are able to sense the bones. What I thought was pretty cool is that Luminara's bones have the same tattoo as her skin face, so the tattoo goes straight to the bone. I kind of like that, but that that's the answer to the question. What you're looking at is a hologram, and it's actually Luminara's execution hologram. And Kanan is able to sense her bones, but he when he says that something's not right because she's deceased.
1: So she didn't die on Kashyyyk. They captured- no, okay,
4: no. Well, they captured her and and executed her, and he doesn't say that, but he insinuates that it was not Vader. It was the Inquisitor that executes her.
3: How
2: needlessly elaborate! <laughs> it's it's <laughs> it's definitely. It has all the makings of a plot from any movie that needs to be ripped apart. You know, way, way too much thought going into it. But the idea of it being that bones can carry essentially a force sense. That tends to be something you don't see much in the Legends continuity, although there have been instances of things like mummified remains that do. And here this basically is a sarcophagus with mummified remains. I'm not... I wouldn't say that it's odd with the whole tattoo because it doesn't look like that's actually her bones. It's She's mummified. Some of the features are gone. Some of the features are still there, including things like the lips, that you wouldn't see if it was fully bones. So you've got this sort of mummified version of her. Maybe there's some midichlorians perhaps still in the tissues that haven't entirely died off and gone back to the living force or whatever. Um, But the idea that that sort of could act as a marker that he can sense her – For instance, he can't just reach out in the force and sense her anywhere in the galaxy. Maybe nobody could. But when he gets there, there's this sense of her being there, but a wrongness to it that would make sense for it to be a body if mummified, etc., etc. The fact they had to use the little hologram thing, that was a little odd. Kind of cool, interesting to see that she must have died there or in a place very similar because she moves directly into it. In this, it, it, It's implied that it's actually the sarcophagus where she is killed, not just where her body is held in that clip. But I don't know, just, it, it's a little more elaborate than one would hope. I think to me what gets me in the scene is the fact that when they get in there, Kanan, and again, he was just a Padawan when his training ended. He's noticing that it's Luminara and something is wrong, but he's not able to discern when just a few feet away that the sense he's getting of Luminara is coming from this container right nearby versus coming actually from what he thinks is Luminara there with the hologram. You would think he'd be able to look at the hologram and recognize that there's no life force coming from it. It's elsewhere within the room, unless that's just part of his blanket something's wrong type of sense that he says that he has either way though. An awesome bait and switch because we expected Luminara to play a bigger role here uh, from seeing the previews. And it turns out, of course, that she's already dead. And Legends Continuity, she was dead. She died on Kashyyyk in the comic adaptation of Revenge of the Sith. Her fate, thanks to that scene being removed and only being there as an animatic, I think it is on the Blu-rays for Episode 3, has left her fate sort of up in the air until now. So we find out sort of what happened to her. And at the same time, get a great bait and switch in the process. I like it. Even if it was a little hard to, to follow without Filoni having to come out and explain everything.
1: I agree with you guys. This was needlessly elaborate. And it kind of goes back to the idea that I had that this would make a great two-parter. That they could have maybe gotten up to this point, And when the Inquisitor enters, that would have been the perfect cliffhanger for a two-parter. And then the next episode, they kind of learn these things about Luminara and what happened, you know, and they could have made this escape from the prison a little bit more elaborate. Maybe they could have like, you know, while Ezra and Kanan are dealing with the Inquisitor, they maybe Sabine and Zeb could have pulled records that kind of maybe made that more explicit, you know, kind of gave that information to the viewer. Either way, we get the introduction of the Inquisitor. And... I am hard-pressed to think of a better introduction of a villain in Star Wars. What do you guys think? I was just – I loved this sequence and the fact that, as I said, he's just toying with them. It was masterful.
2: And I've been waiting to see Jason Isaacs do this performance uh, in in a real way, not just a quick little clip that we got in Spark of Rebellion or the clips now, plural – But to see him really take on this role, it's cool to see Lucius Malfoy step into Star Wars, so to speak, in this case. I think actually his performance here is the one thing that makes me sit back and say that the thing with the elaborate trap and the hologram and everything, as needlessly elaborate as it was, still kind of fits. Because this is someone who seems to take pride in his work and the artistry of it all. He's sort of the aloof, almost if there was such a thing, Within the dark side as nobility, he's someone up there looking down on the vassals and the serfs. He comes in, he he shows his knowledge very quickly in terms of being able to interpret who Kanan is, who his master was, Depa Bilaba, of course, which we know from but I guess others wouldn't have known. Based on his fighting style, uh, being able to essentially switch tactics in the middle, right? He's sort of playing that... The satanic, you know, I will make you a deal thing with Kanan. And when that's not going to work, fine. He'll make the deal with Ezra and just sends Kanan flying back in order to switch tactics. He really is someone who seems that that unflappable, aloof, powerful character. The only thing that seems to make it so that they're sort of focusing on the aloof side and less on the effectiveness side is the fact that it seems as though in many respects, uh, when it comes to Star Wars villains and needing to catch our heroes... It's much preferable to stalk slowly and cool than it is to actually run fast and catch them.
1: It's the Jason Voorhees effect.
2: Exactly.
3: Yeah, I mean, by the way, just to go back to a a quick point, I, I say needlessly elaborate in the sense that it was needlessly elaborate considering the few seconds it got on screen time. If they tell us more about this process, I mean, hey, maybe that sarcophagus was draining force energy from the body and the Inquisitor, we're going to learn later that the Inquisitor is harvesting it or that the Emperor has got some project or he's harvesting it. And, and we learn a lot more about it. If it pays off down the road, then I'll give it a nod. To your point on the Inquisitor, yeah, I think the introduction of the Inquisitor was, was fantastic. I think, uh, too, the scene in just a few minutes, it was very successful in making me afraid for the heroes. I actually felt very quickly that the Inquisitor could snuff them out at any moment. I think that whole thing where he said, hey, you must have trained under so-and-so, that was so awesome. He That instantly gave him credibility that he has probably slewed many Jedi, or that he, he's got some street cred, that he knows the Jedi, he knows their fighting style, he's probably cut down a few, and the fact that Kanan was like, Wait, you, yeah, how'd you know, that that really was a clever way to give him almost instant credibility of being the third baddest dude in the galaxy.
4: I am so glad that the Inquisitor is not the Sun because when they first uh, put out these promo images of the Inquisitor, he looked so much so similar to that character, the Sun from that terrible terrible episodes from those terrible episodes from the Clone Wars that I was so scared that this was going to be the same character or a version of that character. And he is so not. This is a Sith Lord. I know they're not calling him a Sith Lord, but this is a Sith Lord. He has studied the Jedi. He knows their weaknesses. He knows how they fight. He can trap them. He was not scared. He was in control of that entire fight until up until the end, and they just kind of got lucky to escape. But there were so many times in that cell where he could have just lopped off Kanan's head. And I love the fact That the first thing he goes after is the Jedi's Padawan. Come to the dark side, man. Come to the dark. I love that. I love that. Come with me. You know, that's the first thing he does. What a great villain. And I said it before, he's so much more powerful than Kanan. He's so much more powerful than Obi-Wan, I would say. You know, I mean, he, he could take out anybody he wanted to. And this is going to be a character that is going to be fun to see how he loses every time because he's so powerful.
1: I don't think he's gonna lose every time. Back to what you said about, you know, how he is like that powerful, there's something else that he he did for me. And it was funny. I think I caught on to it the, the second time. Remember how we said that Kalis and the fact that Kalis was so effective and he wasn't just a mustache twirler, kind of boosted the credibility and the sense of threat even before we met him of the Inquisitor because Calus answered to the Inquisitor. For me, the Inquisitor's capabilities elevated Vader and the Emperor for me because he answers to them. He's subservient to them, he's so powerful, so how how powerful, how dangerous must they really be if somebody as as deadly as this answers to them?
4: Absolutely, Jonathan, I could not agree with you more. Vader is out there kicking some ass. Okay. If this is the Inquisitor who's answering to Vader, because we all know how the Sith like to take each other out. You know, they all think they're more powerful than the other ones. And that's the one thing that the prequel trilogy did for me is to show just how powerful Vader is when he was younger and can be. Because in the original trilogy, in Return of the Jedi, Luke kind of just overpowers him. And I don't know if it's because Vader was old or whatever, but in here, in Rebels. Vader is, is something to be reckoned with. And when we see him, which I assume we eventually will see him in battle somehow. And when the Emperor shows up, it's going to be epic, man. And I could not agree with you more on that.
3: I mean, we saw that scenario play out in Clone Wars when the Emperor takes on Savage Press and, and Darth Maul. So we, we, we got a snippet of this concept. I think this series would you know, do itself a, a disservice if somewhere down the road, I don't know, season three, whatever, that the Inquisitor and Darth Vader don't go at it at some point. Again, anything can happen to anybody except for Vader and the Emperor. We know what their fates are. But again, he's been on screen 10 minutes, right? And I already think, man, that's what Darth Maul should have been in episode one. That's exactly what we probably, when we first saw Darth Maul and the double blade lightsaber, it's a similar type of reveal from the trailer. Remember November of 1998, we see the trailer and he's taking on two Jedi and pops open that double-blade lightsaber. We had in our head this character for Darth Maul in episode one.
2: It'll be cool to see where he goes from here. He certainly is a better villain in terms of the sense of the menace than what we got, say, with General Grievous. Though, he does have that General Grievous spinning lightsaber thing. And I must say... That despite, you know, the advice of Anakin Skywalker that you don't try spinning, that's a good trick. That is the one thing about the Inquisitor that I didn't like. I like the fact that there's a point at which he's sort of twirling the lightsaber in his hands the way my sister used to in the color guard, you know, spinning around a flag or whatever it was in terms of using two hands to spin the lightsaber by actually rotating the hilt itself. I've never been a big fan ever since the reveal, the toys and all that stuff of this idea that he's got a lightsaber that could somehow spin. I mean, I saw the handle and the fact you got kind of a guard there with the half circle there. That works. That works for me. You know, it's kind of like an old saber and such and all. But then, you know, the idea of it popping out and becoming something that's more like a double bladed lightsaber thing with the, the, the ability to turn the double blade. Not much of a problem, although, again, the more double-bladed lightsabers you see, the less cool and unique it is to see Darth Maul's, of course. But when it spins, the spinning, I don't know, for whatever reason, just I don't buy into it. Even if it's just the fact that I'm looking at it, and I guess I'm expecting that there has to be a power cell or something coming out of the hilt, and to have it be it's that they can move the emitters and have them not align with the hilt and still work, Maybe that's what's getting me. My, my legends continuity stuff is just bothering me, but it just seemed odd and kind of goofy that he could spin it a la spinning the hands on General Grievous and the blaze just spin and spin and spin and he can hold the hilt steady. It's a cool gimmick, but I think it is a cool gimmick that after one episode, I think I'm already tired of. It doesn't sit right with me as a menacing form of Inquisitor or Sith lightsaber.
1: Nathan. I think when I like you first saw the toys and I saw that this weird sort of spinning thing I I wasn't I wasn't keen on it. I I didn't think it was going to work. But when I saw how he used it and in this episode and how he it kept first he had a single blade and then a double play a blade and then it spun. You know, I I'm usually the technical guy, but this, for some reason, the continued escalation, it worked for me and it, it just added to the threat of him. And I I really did like it. I'm not sure if I would like it as much if he it, if it gets pulled out every single time, but and it surprises no one more than myself. It worked for me.
4: You know, I have to agree with Jonathan. When I first saw the Spleening blade, I didn't think I was going to like it, but the way he uses it, it is awesome. I, you know, I knew that we would find something to disagree about on this episode, Nathan, but I think the way he uses it, it's very menacing. It doesn't look goofy at all. And I feel scared for Kanan every time he twists that blade.
2: It's just one of those things where, you know, if you can do that, why bother fighting any other way? You know what I mean? If you've got the ability to just turn the thing on, and just let it, like a freaking buzzsaw and hold it out in front of you, why bother dueling? You know, it just it's, it's overkill to me, I guess. And... It feels like, and I very rarely said this with anything in a felony Star Wars cartoon, it feels like it was designed specifically to sell toys.
4: We are dealing with Disney here. Uh, I think it probably was designed to sell toys, Nathan.
2: Then again, I guess there's another lightsaber coming that I love because I created a design very similar for an old story that I did many years ago as fanfic. So maybe I'll be eating my words eventually at the idea of gimmicky lightsabers.
1: Now, Nathan, I'm going to challenge what you said about why would you use it any other way. I think each incarnation of that saber, each mode, served a different purpose. In close quarters combat, inside the cell, he could use the single blade. When he was in the hall, maybe he had a little bit more room to go backwards and forwards. That's when the double blade came out. And when the spinning blade came out, first of all, there was an intimidation factor. But as far as a dueling tool – it's not very effective because all you have to do is really stab in the center. If that thing's spinning, you can't duel. But what you can do, and what he did, and I thought was a great use of it, is you can throw it, and it can spin, and it it becomes a very, very deadly weapon.
2: Except lightsabers have been thrown plenty of times, including double-bladed lightsabers, at least in Legends continuity, without needing it to have that spinning apparatus. You just throw it so that it spins and you're fine. It doesn't really need that apparatus to do it. And I guess I guess to me it's the same thing, same problem that I have anytime that I'm watching episode three and Grievous breaks out, the spinning blades, you know, I'm just going to do like a saw blade thing as I walk toward Kenobi thing. If you can really do that, Why not position all the Grievous' arms in a certain direction, spin the blade so they don't touch each other, and just let him walk through the clones and kill them all? I don't know. For whatever reason, that type of thing, whether it's Grievous or the Inquisitor, it's always felt out of place and doesn't fit with me in the idea of this being a sword mastery thing. This is someone who's skilled in the art of the blade and so forth. You know, Uh, This blade is an extension of you and all this kind of stuff to just say, here, let's press the easy button, staple style.
1: I think it goes back to a psychological intimidation. As I said, I don't think that the spinning blade is a very effective weapon, especially when dueling somebody with a saber. But I think as an intimidation factor, I, I think it, I think it would work wonders.
4: And it wasn't very effective as a throwing weapon anyway. I mean, Kanan just hits it like a baseball right back to him. So. But I did like the fact that when Zeb's trying to hold the blaster open for Sabine and Ezra and Kanan to jump through, he jumps into the hangar right before the Inquisitor, you know, and it closes in the Inquisitor's face. He's kind of sitting there smiling, and then the lightsaber comes right by Zeb's face. Zeb has never seen Kanan use a lightsaber like that before. You could tell, or else he would never have been standing
1: there. So I thought that was pretty cool. And I did like the little little jokes. Does your saber do that? Yeah, yeah.
2: Speaking of joke, as we're rounding out things in the episode here, as cool as the sequence was with the Inquisitor in there and the danger it presented and the multiple offers and the slamming of Kanan backwards and Kanan kind of using all of his might, what he had to be able to, to allow Ezra to escape and all, may I say that this episode went even further in showing us that, that Imperial Stormtroopers have no aim whatsoever? They're morons. Because in the final sequence, after they've gone together to, you know, let's combine our strength and lift it up the door. And they're on their way out with the the Phantom coming in and the TBDs coming down with them. The Stormtroopers are just firing away and the heroes aren't dodging for cover or anything. They're basically standing right there waiting to make their move. And the Stormtroopers are blasting away and not hitting squat. That, I think, is going to be the thing about the Imperial Stormtroopers that, yeah, it was goofy in the films. But to have that be the case for the entirety of this cartoon series is going to strain credulity big time, especially after we saw so much with the effectiveness of the clones back in The Clone Wars. There's no way they were shooting actually in the direction of the characters throughout that entire sequence.
1: Roger, roger. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that is definitely something that they're going to have to deal with in this I've read different things. (laughs) Actually, this is pretty bad. I'm getting this from the collectible card that was included with the subway uh, bag that that you get with the kids meal. On the card, it says that because the Empire is expanding so quickly that, unfortunately, the quality of their their troops, the quality of their stormtroopers has suffered. And as kind of a a look forward to next week, I think we're going to see... What some of the problems with uh, the stormtroopers and why they're getting maybe some of the lower quality is. But overall, I think this episode worked really, really well. And before we close it out, I, I do think it's worth mentioning that this kind of continued strain on the relationship between Ezra and Kanan. And even though they did resolve it, I think it was something we we kind of glossed over earlier that Ezra sees Kanan's desire to have Luminara be his teacher as a rejection, as an abandonment, while Kanan sees it as he doesn't feel he's worthy. He doesn't feel he's a good teacher. And I really, even though they they kind of resolve resolve it by the end of the episode, I see this as something that's going to be a continual issue. Is Kanan's basically lack of faith in himself and based on the way he started things at the beginning of the episode, probably rightfully so. But th- this continued strain, the Inquisitor made an offer to Ezra and Ezra initially rejected it. But if Kanan continues to be this ineffective, I wouldn't be surprised if Ezra becomes tempted.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think Ezra's is obviously the, uh, the point of view character for the for children, So I, I doubt we'll ever actually see that, but it will be a really good plot point throughout the series of Kanan's effectiveness as a teacher. I think they, I don't know, I, I felt that it wasn't, uh, I mean, I, I don't know how old Ezra is, but I think even Ezra should have been able to recognize the difference between, no, he just doesn't want you anymore versus, hey, he wants you to get a better teacher. I think that was clear. I think the concept was ridiculous from Kanan's perspective of, hey, Luminar has been locked up since the Clone Wars. Let's go free her and she can teach you. Yeah, that's the first thing she's going to want to do. You know, if you go go rescue her, that's, <laughs> you know, oh, hey, great. Yeah, I'll, I'll hang out with you guys and teach this kid. I mean, I think the whole concept from, from Kanan's perspective was actually a lack of maturity of even think that if Luminar was alive and well, that I don't know if that would be the priority for her versus maybe connecting her back with other Jedi masters or what have you. But... I don't know. We get a sweet moment at the end with them playing catch.
4: Well, I think one of the sweetest moments was the Jedi, the Jedi, I wouldn't even call them a master, but the Jedi and the Padawan raising the door together and them working together to get that bay door open so they can escape. I mean, that was pretty awesome. I like seeing that, that they were able to use the force together to solve that problem. And that gave me chills. You know, uh, when they had the, the camera pan from the back, they turned their arm from a palm to, to lifting up was pretty cool. They do need to get rid of Ezra's backpack though. I mean, his backpack serves no purpose. Uh, I hate it and I hate even more than that little slingshot thing he gets. You know, they even see him, they even show him throwing a little slingshots at the stormtroopers. And when the redesign comes for Ezra, I will be more than happy. But to your point, Jerry, he is not going to go to the dark side. I mean, he is a pure heart, even though he was a thief. He will not go to the dark side. But I'm not so sure about Canaan. We may have a story where Canaan gets tempted.
2: I think the relationship between the two, it plays out in a very human sort of way. You take the fact that Ezra is an orphan. Everyone that sort of has been there for him is gone. You know, no parents, we don't know exactly what the circumstances are for the parents. but. No parents whatsoever. And if we go back to something like A New Dawn and Ezra's Gamble, we find that there are people on Lothal who are his friends who are now gone thanks to things like the Empire coming in and trying to take the family's land and whatnot. He really has been on his own for a very long time. And in that sense, uh, feelings of abandonment would sort of make sense for the character that if it's, oh, hey, here's a new teacher, it's not, oh, look, cool, a new teacher. It's he wants to get rid of me. That. It makes sense from a psychological perspective for the character, whereas Kanan, he's thinking of it sort of in his own head, you know, of him not being worthy as a teacher and just expecting Ezra to get it. It's a very male thing to do, right? Hera's the one that's like, you know, Ezra, come here. Let's talk about something when it came to Zeb and his species background and everything. Kanan and Ezra, both guys and relatively young guys at that. One in his 20s, I believe it is. Uh, the other's fourteen. And these two characters together, I mean, they just don't express their feelings. They bounce off each other expecting, you know, well, my point of view, of course, is the right one. Of course, it's obvious. So, of course, he's going to know. But instead, it's that guy is assuming things and running into each other because they're not opening up with the specifics. They just kind of assume that their way is the way of looking at the situation. I like that. And I think it'd be cool to see that grow, because it allows for those moments like, you know, I don't want the best teacher, I want you, I mean, and stuff like that. It's just sort of something, I guess, I don't know if it's just because I'm a teacher, and I remember what it was like the first year or two of teaching versus the way I feel about it now, that it really feels like a human dynamic, and I tend to like to see that Kanan isn't ready yet. You know, the Ezra, he may be ready, he may not. Kanan isn't ready yet either. And I think that's something that's going to be a very human element of this series rather than just saying, oh, well, hey, here's this young character who could be a Jedi. Here's a character who's basically a Jedi at this point. Go ahead and train him and everything will work, which is what I feared would happen when we first heard these characters announced.
1: You know, Nathan, I'm glad you brought it up because that's what really rang true to me is that not only... Are these characters going through different things? It's psychologically realistic, for lack of a better term. When you said abandonment issues, that's what spoke to me. Ezra is dealing with abandonment issues. That's very, very clear. I think it's actually amazing that he's bonded to this group as much as he has in the, the short time. You kind of see that he's developing different relationships with different members of the crew. I mean Hera is always the one that's kind of like giving him that little hug or you know she's she's she always seems to have her hand on him and he f- seems to find that calming maybe I'm looking too much into it as i've said Zeb is the very is very much the brother relationship and that you know even after they got along really well and they seemed to to reach a point that, that there was still that antagonism this time obviously Sabine is, is still the interest and jumping all the way back to the beginning of the episode, I, I, I still found it amusing as, as he might be falling to his death and he's sliding down the, uh, the bubble cockpit. He, he kind of still making eyes at Sabine and she's like, Oh God, really? I like the relationships. And I think that's what it all boils down to. I like the relationships between these characters and the baggage that they're all bringing. It, it feels genuine. And it's something that I don't think we ever got in the Clone Wars and I really like it. But before we close out this episode, Jerry and I and some other Star Wars fans were talking this past weekend and something came up about how long do we think that Rebels is going to last? We know that episode 7 is on the horizon, but we were discussing looking at the the model that Disney uses for its animated series. And what we came to is most of their animated series last maybe two or three years and then they reset and do something else sometimes with the same characters do you think that rebels is gonna have the same type of longevity that the Clone Wars did or do you think that we're gonna be continually following the Disney model
2: I'm gonna hope that they plan on leaving it for at least five years if you do five seasons and each one represents a year within the continuity then that brings us actually straight up into a new hope, the way they try to use the Gindy Tartakovsky series, and we're planning on using the Clone Wars to lead directly into Episode 3. Uh, the fact that we have minor spoiler alert, I guess, in trailers for what to expect from the season, there's a reference to a five-year plan for the Empire when it comes to how to seize more of the galaxy and such. It seems as though maybe this is Filoni and company saying, you know, we've got. A five year plan, at least for this series, we have broader arcs being planned and maybe they're using the lessons they learned from Clone Wars to do it. Uh, But I am definitely concerned when looking at the Disney model of doing things and the way that the ratings of season one so far are being interpreted, Uh, that this series may not be able to last long enough to really fulfill any kind of broader arcs, if that's what they're aiming for. This could be Babylon 5 getting cut off at season four without TNT to step in and give us more.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think one of the things that triggers fear for me is maybe not a good example when Marvel's Avengers Earth Mightiest Heroes sort of like stopped, and I guess it ran maybe technically four or five years, but it, it seemed like Disney intentionally stopped that series just so they could do it their way to tie into Ultimate Spider-Man, and I think Ultimate Spider-Man's already in its third season, and I don't know if there's any plans to shut it down, so. I don't know if the two or three season rule is necessarily applicable. I mean, the non-adventure series, I mean, S. Phineas and fur has been on for years, and you know, some of the other shows they do will go, I guess, untouched as long as their ratings are good. So I, I think this is actually a, a place where you almost have to just stand back and say, man, I, I really don't know what the Disney approach with Star Wars is. I, I can't even venture a guess if it's a... A two year series until they repackage into something else. I bet if it does get repackaged, it'll be a okay. Ezra is now 18 or 19, you know, like to where they need a new character model for him, sort of how we saw with Ahsoka a little bit. But I bet they'll keep this going as, as le- at least as long as the ratings justify it.
4: You know, so I would assume Disney would be smart enough to realize you don't want to have a Star Wars film, you know, they're going to make these films for eight, nine years or however long, you know, they're saying they're going to make these films plus the spinoffs. It just doesn't make any sense not to have a cartoon of Star Wars on the Disney channel or Disney XD, just like it doesn't make any sense not to have an Avengers cartoon on television. When you have Avengers movies coming out, Captain America movies coming out, Iron Man movies coming out. I don't think that the Disney brass is stupid enough not to have some sort of entertainment for children on their channels. So I think this is going to be around for a long time. You know, we got six
1: years or six years of the Clone Wars, six seasons. We could go 10 years with this. Barron, I think you're right that Disney will have some sort of animated media that is going on at the same time as their movie media. The thing is, is I'm wondering if they're going to switch to something that directly links to the movies. And that's where I'm concerned if we're not going to really get longevity with Rebels. I mean, are they in two years when, or I mean, right now, maybe just a little over a year, when episode seven comes out, are they going to want something that takes those characters or has to do with that, that movie to really support that? And that's kind of what I'm wondering.
4: I'm not sure that episode seven is going to need that kind of support. I think it's going to fly on its own the way that some of the things that are coming out for episode seven, and I won't spoil it for anybody, but it's a lot darker than rebels is. So I don't think that would be appropriate for children on their Disney channel. So they're going to have to keep rebels around for a while. And that's I think that uh, it's just my opinion. But that's what I think.
3: Yeah, I, I think you're going to see different types of support, I think. And I'm with Jonathan. I think if, um, well, I, I'm really with both of you guys. I think there will always be a Star Wars series, but is it like Transformers on like the hub and Cartoon Network? You know, they, they revamp Transformers every two or three years. It's animated, then it's Prime, and then it's, uh, heck, I don't even know what the, the new series are called, but they repackage it and redesign the characters a little bit or bring some theme into it. They, you know, give it a little bit of a, a, a of a change. So I think XD will always have something Star Wars, and the support's going to be different. You know, in movie years, it's going to be to complement it. In off movie years, if there are any off movie years, I guess though maybe early on will be some, but there might be some support to bridge the gap or to kind of keep the interest going, so that when the the next movie comes up, the kids are still into Star Wars. You know, who knows? I I, I think it is. What I hope to happen, Jonathan, is I guess if I was running running the shots at a Disney-run Lucasfilm, I would have Rebels run through Episode Seven and then create some series at Bridges, Episode Seven and Eight. And if the same characters play into it, great. If not, heck, who knows? Maybe they could have multiple series. I I don't know what they could sustain. Time will tell. I guess one thing I want to kind of get at, Nathan, you mentioned the ratings. What are the what do we know about the ratings so far? You kind of you made your statement earlier as if the ratings aren't going so hot so far.
2: You know, I have to pull up some of the articles that I was reading. But, yeah, they, they haven't been what was expected or what was hoped for, I guess, is what the issue is. And it doesn't seem as though there was a, an upswing in it and comparing to other things that Disney has done. I would there's been some great articles done on it. None of them were mine. I've just had a chance to read some of them, and it seems as though the ratings have not been what one would hope for with it. You know, Even taking into account the fact that you have people watching it early on Watch Disney XD, you have people getting it off of uh, media like iTunes and such, and the fact that it's on Disney XD instead of a regular Disney channel that a significant portion of cable providers don't have available. It's just not been where they've wanted it apparently particularly with the demographic that they want. Of course, it's also late at night on a school night. But from the standpoint of tying this, of needing something to tie into episode seven, I would say who knows that what we're seeing right now isn't a tie into episode seven. I mean, they've had things that sort of hinted at that before in some of the interviews with people involved in the production staff, Though whether that's just them, you know, kind of being cheeky or if they're actually meaning, hey, you know, watch out. You might see a connection between this and the films that are coming up. I think back to an image making the rounds on places like Facebook and whatnot of Adam Driver, who's in episode seven, uh, at his picture alongside Ezra. I would buy him as an older Ezra, maybe. So who knows what we're gonna see? It's it's one of those things that time will tell. But hopefully the series will live long enough to let time tell, as opposed to to ratings uh, or low expectations driving it off when it's much stronger now at the beginning than Clone Wars ever was at the beginning.
1: Well, again, it's another case of wait and see. Anyway, I want to thank you all for joining me tonight. As always, it's a really good time discussing these with you, and you always help me look at things a different way. Barrett, Nathan, again, always good to talk to you. Jerry, thank you so much for being willing to join us tonight. It was great to have you back.
3: Oh, hey, I had a blast. This is... uh. This uh, takes us back to the good old days. Well, until next week, guys, talk to you soon.
2: See you. See see you next week. Catch you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Wars Reports Rebels Roundtable. Rebels Roundtable is hosted by Jonathan, Barrett, Jen, Nathan, Mark, and Dan. Interact with us online at Facebook.com rebelsroundtable Rebels Roundtable or on Twitter at Rebels Round. Also, be sure to visit RebelsRoundtable.com when looking for an episode directory of the show. The Rebels Roundtable team is proud to carry on the legacy of enganza Media's Republic Forces Radio Network podcast. We invite you to visit RepublicForces.com's archive section to hear many of the team members' thoughts on the Clone Wars, droids, Ewoks, and the Clone Wars micro-series. And check out Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com, which you can find among the 2nd Airborne Division podcast network at StarWarsReport.com. Star Wars Rebels, and all that the Star Wars universe contains, is the intellectual property of the Walt Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. Star Wars Reports Rebels Roundtable is copyright 2014, all rights reserved.
2: It's in keeping, I think, with the, not rebel, but the, uh, uh, what am I looking for? Sort of the, the, out... What's the word I'm looking for? Fuck. Not that one. <laughs> yeah, not that one. Exactly. <laughs> um, okay, okay, I
3: got it. Or buffoonery, so sort of commie like we've seen with the Jar Jars and uh, what was the little frog guy in the Sunny Day in the Void? What was his name? Colonel. Anybody?
2: Meeber Gaskin.
3: I'm trying to block that out, actually. <laughs>
4: How could you not remember Eber Gaston?
3: Gaston, that was his
2: name? Gascon. Gascon.
1: Okay. Gascon. Gascon. Who cares? We're never going back there. Never. I refuse. And if he shows up in Rebels, wrong.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, let me let me just leave him out. Oh, Jerry.
4: You don't know how my heart pity patted when your sweet, sweet <laughs> voice came on the, the microphone because Jonathan didn't tell us. All he said was, it's gonna be a mystery guess. Ooh. Oh, 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 oh. And I I wouldn't have enjoyed it more if it was Arnie, my friend. It's good to have you back, and you make us sound so good again.
2: Yeah, Barron doesn't read all the emails. It's okay. You know, it's, it's awesome to have you back, though. I, I, but hey, you know could, we could do a, a change up again later. We have you back, and have you a host like you used to. Wouldn't you love to do that?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> um.
1: Are you I trying to give of- my job away this soon, Nathan? No, are you really, this was, dissatisfied? Uh, Am I the I Luminara? I
4: want to see him yeah, we him, him that quickly. Jerry's running for Luminara. Uh, here you go, Ezra.
3: Let me, let me step in this box and get uh, uh, turned into bones.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Mummified remains.
3: Will
2: you
1: please stop talking?